Hello and welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector and I'll be your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, this podcast exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. Here's how it usually works. In each episode, a different guest comes on and asks me three questions. We have a 10-minute conversation about each of them. I hopefully give you and them some valuable answers, some actionable tips you can use to grow your audience and business. But today's episode is going to be a little different because this is going to be a flip the script episode. Instead of someone coming on to ask me questions, I brought on a special guest whose expertise I want to learn from, and I'm going to ask him three questions. I am super excited for today's guest, who is Justin Welsh. Over the last decade, Justin has helped build two 50 million ARR companies, teams of 150 plus people, and raise over $300 million in venture capital. Now he's building a portfolio of one-person businesses to $5 million in revenue. Outside of that, he's an advisor to early-stage SMB SaaS companies and an LP at GTM Fund, a rolling fund investing $4 million per year into early-stage B2B SaaS companies. On top of all of that, Justin is absolutely dominating LinkedIn, blown up on Twitter, and to be honest, is one of the most impressive sort of creator, entrepreneur, creative entrepreneur types that I have come across. So I am really thrilled to have him on the show. And so with that, Justin, welcome and thank you for doing this. I'm really excited to be asking the questions as opposed to answering them this time and looking forward to sucking some expertise out of of your head. Thanks, man. Josh, it's really good to see you again. And I appreciate the the really warm intro and I'll try not to let everyone down. (laughs) (laughs) I I know you won't. So let's, we'll get, we'll get right into it because I, I want to make the most of our time. The first thing I want to know is you've got a lot of strengths, but the one that really jumps out to me as unique is your ability to systemize things as a creator and develop processes that work for you. Can, it's something that I feel like I'm pretty good at, but every time I see the stuff you're doing, I'm like, oh, wow, he's, that's, like, that's, that's like next level. I'm very envious of a lot of the sort of systems that you've created which is saying something because I don't often feel that about other other people. So can you give me an example or two of how you've created a system from start to finish? And in general, how do you identify where a system can help you? How do you start to construct one? How do you improve it once you roll it out? So talk to me about how you think about and use systems. Yeah, well, I think first of all, I'm fortunate to come from an executive SaaS background where you know, I got to build really big teams and big companies in that uh, there's, there's all sorts of process and systems that go into building organizations at that scale. And so bringing that over to becoming sort of a solopreneur, creator, entrepreneur, it was just second nature for me. And I, I also think I'm, I'm in the situation where I don't have any employees. I have a virtual assistant, but she only does administrative customer service and support. She doesn't help with content or anything like that. So it's, it's, a, it's a function of being forced to, to have systems. And so because I come from the background, because it's forced, I have to build them. And so I'll give you an example of maybe how I created one, how it changed over time, some of the mistakes, some of the learnings. That, that's namely around my content. So, so let's think about my business, for example. My business runs on content. And in order for me to do more business, I have to promote and push out more content. The more content that I produce, generally, the better that my business does. 
The more I grow top of funnel, funnel followers on Twitter and LinkedIn, the more my newsletter grows, so on and so forth. So oftentimes when I'm sitting down, I might say, all right, what's a really unique challenge that I have being a content-driven one-person business? Well, it's a pretty easy one. It's creating massive amounts of fresh new content every single week for my audience. So when I saw that, when I saw that that was a driver of business, I started to lay it out for the week. Okay, what are the things that I have to accomplish over the course of one week? So I have to push out a newsletter. So I have to do one newsletter, and that's generally a difficult thing to write. You write a newsletter, you know how difficult it can be, especially when you're just getting started. I also do 10 pieces of LinkedIn content, 10 pieces of Twitter content, a Twitter thread, a LinkedIn carousel, and I also do six posts for my LinkedIn business account. So I've got 28 pieces of content in one newsletter that have to be produced every single week. And so when I'm thinking about what I want the out outcome to be, those are the outcomes, those are the outputs of what I'm doing. And so I might just kind of put those down on a document and say, okay, we've got 20 short form posts, we've got a thread, a carousel, we've got six business posts, a newsletter, and I'll just start to rearrange them in a fashion that makes sense to me. And it may not make sense to everybody. It might just only make sense in my brain, but this is how I build sort of my own system. I think, all right, a lot of people write short form social media content, and then they see what resonates, and then they turn that into a newsletter. That didn't work for me. What, for whatever reason, it just didn't resonate with me. I, I, I couldn't figure that out. To me, it's the opposite. Generally, I found the newsletter to be most challenging. So I kind of move that towards the front of the system. The earlier in the week that I can finish my newsletter comes out on Saturday. My intention is to finish it on Monday. Okay. So it's like I pull the newsletter to the front and then I think, okay, I've got 20 pieces of social media content left that I need to kind of create. So how can I create that, but also do it in a way that's extremely efficient? Well, I've got this newsletter, which is a robust piece of content. So how can I systematize turning that newsletter into 10 to 20 unique ideas? And so what I started to do was create a system where each newsletter can be pushed through six to 10 different lenses. And those lenses are things like a story, an observation, a contrarian take, a listicle, the past versus the present, the present versus the future, uh, an analysis, a teardown. Like there are so many different ways that you can take what you've just written, this long form piece of content, push it through different lenses and learn how to say the same thing a thousand different ways. And when you can say the same thing a thousand different ways, you can create a bunch of different content. Plus, you're also helping people who learn different ways, right? Some people like motivational stories. Other people like step-by-step -step educational guides. So by pushing the newsletter topic through that lens, out the end or out the, out the bottom comes a bunch of different unique content. Okay, that's 20 different ways to create 20 different pieces of content. What about the Twitter thread? Well, instead of writing a brand new Twitter thread, why not take the newsletter, copy and paste it, chunk it down, give it headers and subheaders, and turn the entire written piece of content into its own Twitter thread. So then it's like, I push it through that lens. Carousel, chop it up, download it into a bunch of PDFs, put it on LinkedIn, let people go through the Twitter thread as a carousel. It's the same thing as the Twitter thread, just chopped up into a different format and distributed onto a different platform. So that's like how I create all these different pieces of content off of one idea. So that's how the system started, Josh. But what mm -hmm. happened was I would wake up on Monday the first time I went to run the system and I'm like, got to get the newsletter done because that is the hub of this sort of hub and spoke model. Right. And I sat down and I was like, 
what do I want to write about? Minor like, detail. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute. There's a missing piece here that I haven't thought through of the system. Mm-hmm. Anytime that I come up against friction, my brain says, like, how do you systematize removing friction? So it's like, okay, I need ideation in this system. How do you build ideation into a system? Well, the previous week, I want to make sure that I've ideated so so frequently that I have this pool of ideas that I can pull from come Monday morning. So on Tuesday, Thursday of each week, I set aside 30 minutes each day to ideate. And to ideate, I, I might do things like watch YouTube videos on some of my favorite creators' channel or look at their most popular videos. I'll open your For the Interested newsletter. Is there any interesting thing that you shared that resonates with me that I could put a different mm-hmm. spin on, that I could put my take on that stuck out as a topic? I'll look at my RSS feeds, my readwise. So I've built that in. And now I have step one, ideation, right? Mm-hmm. And that took place of just writing the newsletter because you have to ideate first. So the next week I went to do it, I ideated, picked a topic, went to write. And I was like, I need to include some more robust things in this newsletter. It can't just be my opinion. So I added a research step. And as I'm building these all out, I'm building them in Notion where I create this entire content operating system that I can open up on a Monday and literally walk through step-by-step and out the bottom comes a newsletter and 28 pieces of content. So it went from being just like newsletter and content to ideation, research, newsletter. And then one Thursday I came around and I said, crap, I forgot to edit this. Well, how do I want to edit my newsletter? Let's systematize it. What are six questions? What are four questions? What are three questions that I should ask myself to go through a proper editing process? That list grows and grows and grows. And then the content operating system changes. Ideation, research, newsletter, editing, thread, content. And it just becomes longer and longer and longer. But by the time I'm done, I have a 10-step process. And now each Monday morning, I can open up step one. And by the end of the day, I can create a newsletter. I can create two pieces of promotional content, 20 pieces of short, short form content, a thread, a carousel, and six business posts, simply by following the instructions on my screen. Because when I don't feel motivated, creative, excited, that's where systems come in. And that's why I build them. Wow. First of all, for everyone that's listening and watching, I told you he was master of systems. So that, that, is, that is a fantastic answer. And I'm sure people will find that really helpful. A couple things that I just want to highlight or point out about that. One, the, the idea, and I'm assuming you're going to agree with this, but tell me if you don't, but the idea that systems are always evolved. It's not like you make a system and you're done. They're always evolving, right? Mm-hmm. The second being, I love what you said about friction. And anytime you encounter friction, that being the sort of trigger to like, okay, maybe the system's missing a piece. Maybe this is where I need to figure a system to address that friction. Because I think a lot of people maybe don't know sort of where to start or where I think looking for friction is a great uh, sort of piece of that. The other thing that I love is that you're, because I found this for myself. And when I talk to people, I think this is a huge part of systems as well that you're not, your system's not topic specific, that what you're talking about is formats. And even when it's content, right, the sort of before, after the whatever, that you're creating these sort of boxes that you can apply or templates that you can apply to just about any topic. And I think a lot of people start the other way. 
and go, what am I going to write about? What am I going to talk about? They have a list of topics, but they haven't thought about the system from the sort of format generic box type, right? They're just making lists of, I want to talk about this or this or whatever. And they're not, they kind of think they're building a system, but that's actually a true system is probably independent of topic. Any topic, any content could go into it. Yeah, I think the it's really interesting because if you look at my Twitter content, it looks different every day. Mm-hmm. Some sometimes it looks similar. Like there there are definitely formats that I go back to, styles and structures that work for me and things like that. But you wouldn't see the system on the surface level. Like it's not like you mm-hmm. can scroll through my Twitter and be like, I see this system. And you can't because there's so many different lenses through which you can push content through. And I always get sort of this feedback or or maybe like a contrarian take on on systems from other people. Like, doesn't that take the authenticity away? Won't everyone be the same? I mean, tell me a creative profession that doesn't have systems, right? So like, I like movies. They all go through the exact same plot, whether it's Star Wars or whether it's Lord of the Rings. It's you know, a guy meets a guide, overcomes a challenge. Like it's the same thing done through a different lens. You don't see it as an audience because you don't notice that it's all the same. Music, they all have similar beats, similar backgrounds, similar hi-hats. Like that's why you see a lot of artists say, I think this artist took this from me. And it's like, this is the same sound in 30,000 other songs. Every creative process has a template. Yeah. And also they even wildly created people, right? So you might look at like, let's take someone like Prince who might seem like he's pure creativity, you know, amplified, had a process for how he would record. Yeah, he might go record an album in a different location each time, whatever. But there, I am sure there were things that he was doing every time and the way he thought about creating music that on some level was systematized, right? Even the most creative artists in the world. That's really, really great stuff. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Let's get on to my second question for you. So I want to know your take on membership communities and, and in particular paid membership communities. It's interesting because I see so many people trying to start them. I think they fall in love with the idea of recurring subscription revenue, which is understandable. And I do think memberships can be very helpful. And I, at times I think about starting one and I go back and forth you know, and, and ultimately have not really done it up to this point, but you have an interesting sort of perspective on this because you had built and launched and grew a really successful paid membership community and ultimately decided to shut it down. And I'm curious why you made that two things. One, why you ultimately made that decision when it was quote unquote working. And then also what you learned from building a successful community What do you think were the keys to growing it? And, you know, what advice would you have for people that do want to do that? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll start with why I think it went well. Uh, I think community all starts with sort of focused conversation and focused outcomes. So it's not the Justin Welsh community. It's a community of creators and solopreneurs who want to build a different lifestyle, who want to build one-person businesses. We're all aiming at the same target. We're all trying to achieve the same goal. And I think goal alignment in community is what makes community really purposeful, but it's more than just goal alignment. It's also everyone has to have the same context. And so what I mean by that is generally I've found the best communities that I'm a part of 
it's not just we're all aiming at the same outcome or we all, all join because we like the creator who's running the community, but we've all gone through a similar journey. And that journey is usually in a self-paced course, a cohort-based coaching program where we can all speak the lingo, talk the jargon, talk about the things that we've learned in a in a space that is a community. So it's not just about goal alignment. It's also about we've all been on a similar journey and we all have the same context in reaching that goal. I think if you can get those two things right, those are major things. And of course, there's a lot of nuance in there and small things that I, I haven't you know talked about, but those are the two big ones. And for me, I got one of those things right, which was we had goal alignment. I didn't think to take people who had gone through a specific course or program of mine and put them into a community where they could all talk using that similar jargon lingo and sort of context. That's not why I shut my community down. My community, even though it didn't have that second part, was thriving. 14K MRR business, more importantly, everybody loved it. People liked it. Everyone was resubscribing. Um, for me, it was just a lifestyle choice. And when you make a commitment to a community, you, you drastically reduce optionality. So if you sign people up for a, a year, you're a year away from being able to shut that down if it's something that you don't enjoy. If you sign them up for three months, you're 90 days away. And what I, what I realized is when I opened it for a year, I tethered myself to a 12-month commitment. Now, I enjoyed the community a lot, actually. I, I made some really great friends. We, we did some really great events. We were one of them. But in the end, I wanted to be able to spend my time uh, in, in a more efficient way. I want to build more courses. I want to write a book. I, I want to potentially do a cohort-based coaching program. I want to build a micro SaaS. There are so many things that I want to do. And my personality didn't lend itself well to synchronous communities. Meaning if I had a three hour block of open time from noon to three on my calendar, I'd like to be able to use that to make strategic decisions and drive a big project forward. Instead, what happened was the community existed. It was always there on Slack. So as soon as I had that free time, it wasn't free time anymore. I wanted to go in, chat with everybody, drop a video, create some content. So it's almost like you never had a day off. And because I had people from 61 different countries, I never really had an hour off. Everyone was awake at some point in time. Yeah. So I made this, this difficult decision to shut it down and, and take my time back, take some of my peace of mind back and just pursue different opportunities. Did you, did you consider at all... To what extent do you think that the community was about you versus the community being about each other, right? Like, do you think there's, and, and you can talk specifically about you, but also just in general, because I think yeah. this is another thing that a lot of people get confused about when they're starting communities, right? Like, are people in that community really for access to the creator of that community, or are they in that community for access to the community itself, right? And my guess is, I could be wrong, but my guess is, a lot of your community was people that were drawn to you. Yes, they connected with each other and they loved that. But to your point, if you were to try to step back, my guess is their perception of the value of the community would probably go down significantly. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think what attracted them to the community was potentially me. I, I don't mean mm -hmm. to have that sound arrogant, but um, I, I think that's probably part of the attraction. I, I think it'd be mm -hmm. foolish to say it wasn't. I think once they got inside, what really keeps people in a community is connecting them with one other meaningful person. If you can mm -hmm. do that, like people feel like community is really strong. The events were great. 
when when I went to fold it down, I gave everybody a 90 day notice, which I wanted to make sure that we didn't pull the rug out from underneath anyone. And people were overwhelmingly disappointed, right? They they understood yeah. because I had dropped hints at it before, but they asked, could we keep it open? Could we all just chat? I think when you haven't built a community and cobbled together the technology, people fail to recognize the amount of work it is to keep it moving. Yeah. I can't I can't figure out my Luma password. I don't know how to get into, you know, read the emails. How do I log into outside? Like, like it's just a lot of customer service. And so yeah. Even leaving it open, making it free and allowing it to live on would have been a, a pretty full-time customer service role for me or perhaps my wife or the, the tandem yeah. sort of combination of the two of us. So we just made the decision to shut it down completely. And a lot of folks asked, could they create their own community? And I said, hey, if it's, as long as it's not related to my name, my brand, mm-hmm. you want to solicit folks out of this community, be, be my guest. I wanted them to have a place to go, you know? Can you, can you share the, the way that you charged? Cause I thought what you did was a little different than what most people do, which is sort yeah. of monthly or annual, or whatever. I actually thought it was really smart. So you want to just sort of tell people how you handle pricing and subscriptions. And that kind yeah. Of I started with, um, an annual plan <laughs> and I, I roll, enrolled a cohort, then a second cohort, then a third cohort. And as I started to consider optionality, I recognized that that was a bad idea because each cohort extended my, my, you know, commitment to the project another 12 months. And I never wanted to say like, Hey, we're shutting this down and like giving you a refund. I just don't like that. Mm -hmm. I like to just see through a commitment. And so after a while I started, I moved to quarterly memberships and to me, quarterly memberships are the sweet spot. And if I were to ever do a community again, that's what I would do. I think monthly memberships allow people to come in, kick tires for two seconds, and then exit. It's not a hotel. I didn't want to build that hotel environment. But a year is on the other side for the creator or the person running the community, again, kind of drastically reduces that optionality. So for me, the the quarterly membership was a sweet spot. It allowed me to always be 90 days away from saying, hey, this is no longer something that I'm interested in doing. But it also committed the member to kind of coming in for 90 days, understanding the channels, attending some events, making some friends and getting entrenched in the community. Mm-hmm. So I felt like that was an absolutely right way to price it. And I would recommend that other folks price it that way as well. Yeah, I think that's really smart. And I think the other thing that quarterly does is it gives, it, it forces buyers again to make enough of a commitment to actually give the community a chance to provide value to them. But it also makes it, they don't have to make an annual commitment, which means the price is less. So it, it makes it easier for, I'm sure there were people who maybe wouldn't have signed up annually just based on the expense, but oh, for a quarter, I'll, I'll try it. Or I'm working on a project right now and let me, let me see how it goes. So totally great. So let's get to my third question for you. And this is, I want to know everything you've learned about LinkedIn and Twitter and specifically the differences between the two. So just for some background. You had a ton of success growing an audience on LinkedIn. I think over a couple of years had built up a a massive audience there. Hadn't really used Twitter at all. And then I'm guessing in the past year or two, you sort of jumped over to Twitter and have taken off very quickly there and and had a lot of success. But I think it gives you a unique perspective. And so I'm curious, what's your advice for someone who's maybe active on LinkedIn and now thinking of going into Twitter and vice versa, someone who's active on Twitter and thinking of going into LinkedIn, 
What do you see about those platforms that are similar? What have you noticed is different and how have you sort of adapted to each platform? Because you've managed to have a lot of success on both. Yeah, I went LinkedIn to Twitter and a lot of folks I see on Twitter are going to LinkedIn right now. And I, I don't think they're that dissimilar, right? I think like it is a group of creators and there is a group of consumers and there is a feed, right? Like the, those, those things are all pretty similar, but sure, there are definitely some differences. So maybe I'll, I'll talk through those. So LinkedIn is highly professional, as you can probably imagine. It leans more towards practical content, practicality, emotion, whereas Twitter at least in my echo chamber of Twitter, right? And I know all echo chambers on Twitter are different. Twitter leans a little bit towards more towards being interesting, philosophical, unique. There's a lot of Naval-esque, Sahil Lavinia-esque sort of content on there that's like, you know, creative, one-liners, make you think kind of stuff. And yeah, that like plays well on LinkedIn, but LinkedIn people are there to learn how to get better at their job. And I think a lot of Twitter creators come over and they use a similar sort of pithy format that they might use on Twitter to be interesting or unique or ironic or how, whatever you want to call it. And it doesn't play well on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is just like practical and tactical. How do I get better at my job? And, and outside of practical and tactical, it's very emotional. It's very inspirational. It's very story driven. Whereas Twitter is, I think, more unique and interesting. And, and I don't mean that in LinkedIn is unique and interesting, but Twitter, you have to be unique and interesting in order to stand out. And so I think that's just maybe a primary difference. I think the secondary difference is LinkedIn gives you 3,000 characters where Twitter gives you 280. And also LinkedIn, much like a thread, every post has a header where you have to click see more in order to see the, the remainder of the post. So writing long form on LinkedIn is almost like writing a Twitter thread every day when you write content there. So I think learning that style of teasing out the, the rest of the content through, you know, hook lines, through scroll stopping lines, through unique lines at the top it is a different style than being pithy and witty inside of 280 characters. So if I were going from LinkedIn to Twitter, what I did was I took all of my content from LinkedIn and I compressed it. I took things that were generally longer and I put them into short bulleted structures, easy on the eyes, a lot of white space, short sentences. And that seemed to play really well on Twitter. When I see people come from Twitter to LinkedIn, what I see them do really well is they take those threads, they move them into a LinkedIn post, they've got 3000 characters to play with. And generally it's a type of content that people really like, educational, step-by-step, -step, how to do something. Also, if something's working really well on Twitter, in 280 characters, bring that over to LinkedIn. Bring your entire catalog of popular tweets over to LinkedIn and it's generally going to play well, but keep it professional, keep it tight. There's not a lot of trolling on LinkedIn. It's, a, it's a, just a different environment, but it's also consumer heavy. Everyone is tweeting on LinkedIn, everyone is consuming. And so to me, that's why it is such a valuable channel for audience growth income growth, business growth. And so I think a lot of people after seeing my success on that platform are coming over and recognizing what I recognized in 2019, which was a lot of luck, by the way. But, you know, I saw an opportunity, I saw an opportunity and I think they're seeing that as well. So those are just maybe some, some short differences, but things that I noticed. Do you feel like, uh, so for example, let's say someone's on Twitter and they 
let's say they have successful tweet, but it's, it's short, right? Mm -hmm. It's a couple sentences, right? So like when you were saying like, yeah, bring that over to LinkedIn, would you recommend when they do that, they expand it? This is, I guess, sort of a formatting question, but like yeah. that, 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 you know, one or two sentence tweet that, that, that did really well. Would you make the LinkedIn version of that the same or would you try to expand it to give it a little more length for LinkedIn? Depends. From a copywriting perspective, I would look at the piece of content and I would want to know one of two things. Either either it's one, the other, or both. So let me let me see what let me kind of try mm -hmm. and explain what I mean. So oftentimes if you look at a piece of content on Twitter that's like one or two lines, the brevity of it is part of why it was popular. Because you took because you took something. The other side is the content, the actual content itself. Right. What did I actually say? Right. If you can take something really unique, interesting, and powerful and put it into something that is extraordinarily short, the two of those things generally play together well because people can just consume it in two seconds mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, that was really mind-blowing, a really unique or interesting perspective. So if it's if it's both the brevity and the content together that makes it popular. You can bring that over to LinkedIn, keep the short, keep the short length and keep the content. If it is, if it is generally, you think that only the content and that the brevity didn't play into the popularity of the post, and you think it's the idea or what was presented in it that, that really made it popular, there's no problem in bringing that over to LinkedIn and expanding on that, adding additional information, adding a call to action or a call to conversation making it more robust, teaching a little bit more, those things play really well on LinkedIn. What I, what I tend to do, Josh, to be, to be candid, is if I have a piece of content on Twitter that's 280 characters, I'll generally bring it over to LinkedIn, and then I'll also bring it again three months later with more content added inside of it. Use that as two different posts, review that in Shield Analytics, see which one played well, and then store that again for a six-month repurpose. So mm -hmm. the answer is less about what I say and more about what the data says, but that's how I think about it. And what about, obviously, none of these platforms and none of these algorithms are big fans of people sharing links, right? And so in general... I hardly ever do it. I pretty much tell people it's kind of not worth it. But I'm curious in your experience, do you find if you had to share a link, uh, do you find either Twitter or LinkedIn to be a little better in terms of what you get out of it? Yeah, uh, I do. I feel like a little more link friendly, I guess. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is more link friendly. So here's what I've been doing. People say, oh, it kills impressions. And that's true, mm -hmm. by the way. But let me give you an ex kind of give you an example. My average post, I think, gets 150,000 impressions. And when I put a link in, it might get 70K. So let's, for, for to keep mm -hmm. it simple, let's call it 50% reduction in impressions, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the, the click-through rate on the post is about 7X what, I, what it would normally be if I instead said, go find this in my featured section or go find this in my profile or, you know, I spelled out, Justin Welsh bracket dot me. And I tried to like, right. all that stuff completely eliminates the likelihood that someone's going to click through. So what I found is people are sharing all this information on LinkedIn. Don't put links. It kills impressions. Don't put links. It kills mm -hmm. impressions. But in, my business doesn't run on impressions. My business right. runs on money. <laughs> and so like when I talk about my newsletter or my products or my services, I'm going to link to those things. Like, mm -hmm. sure, it's not going to get the impressions, but I'm going to get so much web traffic. And because so few people are doing it, 
I'm I'm standing out as the guy who's dropping links in my I drop my link and link in my content five times a week on LinkedIn. And when I do that, yeah, I get far in, in the actual post itself, or you just mean in the comments? In the actual post itself. So that's five out of how many posts do you do on LinkedIn? Ten to a twelfth. So almost fifty percent of your yeah. posts have a link in them. Interesting. That's right. The link, that. the link is never an ask, so it's never an aggressive ask. It's never a right. buy my course. It's not it, what I do is using my content system, I chop up my newsletter. So maybe I'll write a newsletter about how to build an online course. And mm-hmm. so once I have the topic, I'll push it through those lenses we talked about earlier. And out the, out the back end will come a story, an observation, a contrarian, take all these different things. So let's take the story, for example. So how to build an online course, first 90 days, whatever. I'll tell a story about that. So here's a story about a course that I built. And I'll tell the story, I'll make it educational, I'll make it a relatively long piece of content because I want to bring the, the reader from top to bottom. The more likely they are to get to, the, if they get to the bottom, they're much more likely to do something interesting with me. So at the bottom, I'll say, if you want to learn more about this topic or get a free guide about this topic, and I'll link out to a guide or I'll link back to the newsletter that I pulled it from and say, want an expansive you know, uh, piece mm-hmm. of content on this? Go here to this newsletter and I'll deplatform 4,000 people a day to that newsletter issue that exists on my website. And then on my website, they'll read through the newsletter issue. And at the bottom of the issue, I passively offer up all the services that I have. Hey, by the way, here are three ways I can help you. This course, this course, this service, whatever. And so I do that every single day on LinkedIn. In fact, I just did it an hour and a half ago. And you can see, if you go to my LinkedIn profile, the one from this morning has 4,000 engagements. The one from this afternoon has probably end up with 700 engagements. But I've got way more traffic on my website right this very moment than I, than I did this morning. That's why I do it. Cool. Interesting. So one last quick thing here. If let's just say hypothetically someone, let's say they're a coach or a consultant or whatever, they don't use social media that much, but they're sort of just starting to, they're trying to figure out, do I start, they're going to start with one platform, let's say, and they say, Justin, should I start on Twitter or LinkedIn? What do you say to them? Yeah. I mean, I I think it depends on where their audience plays. So like, for example, if you're a coach and you work in B2B SaaS or you work in Mm -hmm. sales development or you work in marketing or customer success or executive leadership, those are great places to go for LinkedIn. Definitely. Mm -hmm. You work in fitness and health. You're a trainer. You help people build better bodies. That's Twitter. You're not going to find that people aren't on LinkedIn looking for that type of content. At least that, that's my opinion. Maybe some facts mm-hmm. will, will, will say I'm incorrect, but I've generally seen platform specific by where users hang out. So I would say like, look where your users are. Are you users, you know, professional folks who are looking to get their, do better in their job? Go to LinkedIn. Is it a more niche topic area, health and fitness, crypto, you know, whatever the space might be, that's a better Twitter play, in my opinion. And that's why I think it's much more important to kind of do your research, maybe use a tool like Spark, Spark Toro, and kind of figure out where your audience actually hangs out, because both platforms are excellent for building businesses, in my opinion. Would you agree? I typically tell people start with one platform. Yes. Would you agree? Start with one. As a, I think people start with too many, and they don't realize how long it takes. Like, you'll grow faster focused on one platform. Do you agree with that? 100%. Like, yeah. I, I was on LinkedIn for three years. You know, I, I started on Twitter October 25th of last year. I've been on the platform since 2009, mm-hmm. but I started posting daily on October 25th. And I was, I had been on LinkedIn for two and a half years, built it, built my following up to 200,000 plus before I even dropped really my first sort of week's worth of Twitter content. Cool. 
Well, thank you so much for all of this. Tell people where they can find you and see your systems in action. Tell them about your courses, which I highly recommend, by the way. I hardly ever, I think your LinkedIn course may be the only one that like I regularly, like literally I get people asking me for LinkedIn advice and I'm like, just go take Justin's course. (laughs) Like, Like I can give you some tips, but like, just go take his course. So tell them where they can get more from you and connect with you and all that stuff. Absolutely. Well, thanks for saying that, first of all. And if if they want to learn more about what I offer, they can go to justinwelsh.me. That's Justin, W-E-L-S-H dot M-E. And I really have two flagship courses. One is the LinkedIn operating system, which just teaches you how to grow and monetize your LinkedIn account. And the second one is the content operating system, which is a really robust eight-step process that you can use to create a newsletter, 20 pieces of content. The entire thing I walked through on question one today, that all exists inside of the content operating system on my website. Cool. Awesome. And for anyone who wants more of my nonsense, you can get my newsletter for the interested.com slash subscribe. I do a series of skill sessions, workshops that you can check out at joshspector.com slash sessions. If you'd like to hire me for some consulting or coaching or custom strategies, go to joshspector.com slash consulting. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review it. I appreciate it. I'm also on Twitter pretty much all day, every day uh, at Jay Spector. And if you'd like to be a guest on this show and come on and ask me some questions, or if you're an expert on something, uh, maybe I'll want to ask you some questions. Go to joshspector.com slash questions to apply. That's about it. Thanks again, Justin. This was awesome. I can't wait for people to see it and hear it. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate your interest and I will see you next week.